let's open our Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 3. I think if you were here this morning, you would have enjoyed the uh, Sunday School presentation. Uh, again, we appreciate the, uh, uh, the ministry of the Sunday School um, and the, uh, the work of uh, all the teachers and all the helpers. Also, uh, enjoyed the lunch together. Uh, thank you for hosting that uh, and uh, blessing us in that way as well. Been a good day. In John chapter 2, verse 13, we read about Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem after he began his public ministry. And John's account of that is brief. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 13, that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And you see in verse 13 that says that it was for the Passover. And then arriving at the temple in Jerusalem, verse 14 tells us that there he found in the temple the money changers and the sellers of oxen and sheep and the doves there. Verse 16 tells us that he made a whip of cords and he drove these people out saying, take these things hence and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And this led to what seems to have been Jesus's first confrontation with the religious leaders. And John then concludes this account, his account of this visit, in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. Let's look at those verses. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And need not that any man should testify of man, that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And then chapter 3, verse 1 follows straight on. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, obviously, John intends to use this man, Nicodemus, as an example of the kind of man just described there at the end of chapter 2. The kind of man, chapter 2, verse 23 who saw Jesus working the miracles and had a certain kind of belief in him. Now, it would have been easy for John to write, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, but instead he wrote, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The connection is clear. Chapter 2, verse 25 says that Jesus knew what was in man. Now, there was a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus knew what was in him. Nicodemus came to Jesus, therefore, as representative of those people in Jerusalem who had a certain kind of belief in Jesus, had a certain kind of regard for him. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. There were many people who saw the miracles that Jesus did. And they became marginal believers. And they could hardly have had a better representative than Nicodemus. We're told three things about him. First of all, we're told that he was a Pharisee. Now, people today don't think too highly of Pharisees because of what Jesus exposed about them, particularly their self-righteous hypocrisy. And however true that may have been, what is also true of them, that in that time, Pharisees were among the most respected of people. 
Jesus's problem with the Pharisees was it stemmed from their religious practice and their teaching. But one thing about them that could not be denied is this, that they were exceedingly moral people. They dedicated their lives not only to reading the law and preserving the law like the scribes did, but also they dedicated their lives to keeping the commandments and the requirements of the law. The Pharisees lived above the common level of life. They enjoyed great respect from everyone around about them. And that's who Nicodemus was. He was a paragon of moral virtue. But the second thing we learn, learn about Nicodemus is that he was a leader of the people. Verse 1 tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That would be the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body among the Jews in that day. As a matter of, therefore, Nicodemus was a member of the ruling elite. Thirdly, we also are told that Nicodemus was a scholar. For in verse 10, Jesus addresses him as a master of Israel. Actually, the Greek word for master is the, it's the Greek word didaskalos, which is usually translated teacher. All the Pharisees were devout students of scripture. However, it is noteworthy that the name Nicodemus is actually a Greek name. The upper class Jews often gave their children both Jewish and Greek names, signifying the two worlds in which they live. And having, having adopted his Greek name, Nicodemus therefore must have been a student and admirer of the philosophers. His name appears in the secular records of high officials. The secular documents from AD 70 mention his name. And furthermore, when Jesus calls him the master, Didaskalos teacher, there's actually a definite article before the word teacher. Not just a teacher, the teacher. Are, are you the teacher? Are you the master of Israel? You don't know these things? There's no doubt about it that Nicodemus was a very distinguished individual. He was not merely a man. He was quite a man by the world's standards. And I think it would be hard for us to pick someone similar to him from our era. Someone who combines ethical excellence and political power and notable scholarship. If man were to have a representative in Jerusalem, if those who saw Jesus and believed in the miracles that he did were to have a delegate, then they could hardly have a more fitting representative than Nicodemus. And it's quite amazing that a man of such stature would come and see this carpenter turned prophet. And yet that's what he did. Verse 2 says the same came to Jesus. He came to Jesus. Why, why did he come? It's quite interesting that this is the first encounter that Jesus had with people um, which are then recorded for us in the Gospels. And in each encounter that Jesus had with different individuals, uh, we can notice what it was that brought the person to Jesus or what it was that brought Jesus to the person. It's evident in each case. It's evident here. 
tells us that Nicodemus had observed Jesus. He'd seen the miracles which he did, chapter 2, verse 23. And these miracles intrigued him. He sought an audience with Jesus, this worker of miracles, albeit it was a secret meeting. Verse 2 says, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles which thou doest, except God be with him. First thing we notice about Nicodemus is that he came under the cover of darkness. He'd seen the miracles. He was obviously impressed. He was drawn to Jesus. But evidently he did not wish his visit with Jesus to be discovered. For all of his outward virtue, perhaps he had something to hide. Rabbi, he said, showing respect. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. There is, I believe, in Nicodemus' words, a, a hint of patronage there. We know, he says, making Jesus aware that he's one of the knowledgeable ones, one of the educated ones, one of the enlightened ones. Now, he may have been coming to Jesus with a simple inquiry, inquiry, but I don't think it's too much to say that he meant to impress upon Jesus the authority of his position. He might have gone on to remark, we know that you've come from God, but we have been serving God for a long time here in Jerusalem. And things are different down here than they are up Nazareth. And it would benefit you to, to, to receive some advice. Now, I don't know for sure that Nicodemus was going to say those things. Because Jesus cut him off before he could say anything else. But we read what Nicodemus did say, and what he did say tells us a lot. The key phrase is, we know. Nicodemus comes affirming his knowledge, affirming his opinions, affirming his judgment, affirming his appraisal, his wisdom, his insight. What Nicodemus knows is that Jesus is a teacher come from God. He knows that Jesus is a God-sent teacher, and that is all. Nicodemus reminds us of many people today who are willing to compliment Jesus as long as he just remains a teacher. The learned scholars condescend to approve of him. The leaders of thought and ideas give him their enlightened praise. And yet how different this is from those who are commended in scripture, people of true faith, who rush to Jesus crying, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Or like Thomas did at the end of the epistles, he falls down and worship him, says, my Lord and my God. There's no doubt in my mind that Nicodemus comes to Jesus with some goodwill. But with that of an equal, with that of a patron. He doesn't come as a sinner in need of a saviour. He doesn't come falling down as, uh, in front of a, as a worshipper of God. Verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's significant that Jesus does not welcome his advance. Jesus doesn't actually doesn't do anything to encourage Nicodemus at that moment. Had Jesus been just a mere teacher, just a mere man, even someone that God was with, 
than what Nicodemus said at that moment would have been music to his ears. He's recognised as a teacher come from God. He's acknowledged, he's admired. If Jesus was just a man, Nicodemus' words would have delighted him. But Jesus replies very bluntly. He tells Nicodemus that he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not in a position to know what he's talking about. Jesus says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless until he is born again. Now that was Jesus' reply and we can be sure it was a reproof. But a reproof targeted to push Nicodemus towards real and genuine faith. Now, when we compare this encounter with other encounters that Jesus had with other people, those other encounters and seeing how Jesus interacts with others helps us to understand how, what Jesus is doing here. When he was speaking to the rich young ruler, someone devoted to his money, Jesus com commanded him, sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Pushing that man to faith in him. To the crowd, the multitude, so grateful for the provision of miraculous food, Jesus replies, labour not for the bread which perishes, but for other bread, pushing people in faith towards himself. To the woman at the well, coming to draw her water, Jesus offered living water. Not this one, but this one, pushing her towards faith in himself. And to this confident Pharisee, Proud of his lineage and his attainments, Jesus replied to this man, pushing him towards his greatest need, you must be born again. Commentator Leon Morris writes, I quote, In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that this self-made man be remade by the power of God. You've seen my miracles. You come to me telling me that you know that I've come from God. You know nothing of God's kingdom. You cannot even see it. You can't begin to understand the most basic things of God's kingdom until you are born again. It's not only Nicodemus who needs to be born again. As Jesus proclaimed, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one, no man, no woman, no one can see the kingdom of God. No one can understand, enter into the truths of God's kingdom, the realities of God's kingdom, until he is born again. This is one of the greatest statements in the scriptures. Jesus proclaims that salvation requires not a superficial change, not just an outward reformation, not even further education. J.C. Ryle says, it is a thorough change of heart and will and character. It is a resurrection. It's a new creation. It's a passing from death to life. It's an implanting in our dead hearts this new principle from above. As a matter of fact, that expression born again can also be translated born from above. The Greek word for above there is anothen. It's a combination of the adverb, the word for above, and the suffix from. And that word anothen is found five different times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated from above. That's the way it's translated. For example, if you look in chapter 3, verse 31, it says, He that cometh from above is above all. The word is anothen, translated from above. In that case, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you have to be born from above. 
And this is the point that John makes in the prologue of this gospel. Where he writes chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Which are born not of blood. Nor of the flesh nor of the will of man. But of God. The new birth that Jesus is talking about here is of God. It's from God. It's from, it's from above. God is above. This is where this new birth comes from. Nevertheless, as Nicodemus listens to this, he understands that this is certainly an, another birth. There, there is, there's the physical one, obviously, but there's, there's another one from another source. And so the, the concept of born again is certainly a, a transla translation that we, we shouldn't just dismiss. It's another birth. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Notice that Jesus answered Nicodemus' question by giving another description of what he's talking about. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, when it comes to understanding the meaning of this phrase, water and spirit, there are about as many interpretations as there are commentators. Charles Ryrie, in his study Bible, in the footnote here, he gives five different possibilities as far as interpretations. But there are, there are two reasonable views which I think desire, deserve a mention. One view is that Water and the Spirit refer to two different births. One the natural from the mother's womb and the other supernatural. Natural childbirth involves the breaking of water. And the point would be that you've been born once of water and then you need to be born again by the Spirit. And this idea of two births certainly goes along with verse 6. Which says that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So very reasonable handling of the text and would be consistent with other texts. However, there might be something else here for us to consider. In the Greek text, the grammatical structure of, of water and of the spirit does favour a single description of the new birth rather than talk about two different births there. It assumes, and I think reasonably, that if Jesus rebukes Nicodemus in verse 10, because he's a master of Israel, he's a teacher of Israel, and he doesn't understand these things, then there must be something that is taught in the Old Testament, which Nicodemus should have known. And if you look in the Old Testament, something to do with water and spirit, you will find it there. And you'll find it in one key passage which talks about the same thing that Jesus is talking about here. Spiritual regeneration. And that passage is Ezekiel 36. Verses 25 to 27. You want to write down the reference or you can listen to as I read it to you. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. It says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I'll take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, 
and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. This is talking about new life from God. It's talking about being reborn, regenerated. And here, new life, new life from above means salvation, means cleansing from sin, perhaps by water, and renewing of the heart, giving us a new heart by the Spirit. So that those who were one time rebels against God are now willing followers of the Lord. This is what, this is what the new birth is all about. I think there's something there for us to consider. But fourthly, let's summarise what Jesus says in this passage about the new birth. Jesus goes on to talk about this new birth and he said the new birth is necessary. He says the new birth is necessary to enter in or even to see, to begin to understand the kingdom of God. What Jesus is talking about, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about everlasting life in heaven. He says, unless you are a new person, you cannot enter into eternal life. You cannot begin to understand spiritual life. If you are like Nicodemus and you see Jesus the man, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the miracle worker, and if that's all you see, that won't result in salvation. If that's all you see, you're no different from Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Not only must you be born again to enter into the kingdom of God, verse 3 says you, the new birth is necessary even to begin to see it, to begin to understand it. Now Nicodemus begins by talking about all that he knows. But without rebirth by the Holy Spirit, there is no true knowledge of spiritual things. He could be vastly learned, and learning is a good thing. He could investigate the records, he could hold seminars, he could write papers. But unless God would bring about in this man a new birth, and a new heart, and a new life, and new light shining into his mind, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness under him. Can't see them, can't understand. The problem is not that we lack information about Jesus. But rather we're unwilling to humble ourselves as condemned sinners and admit that we need a saviour. Nicodemus saw Jesus performing miracles in Jerusalem. But until he saw himself as a guilty sinner. Dead in trespasses and sins. In need of new life. He remained outside the kingdom of God. Verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you earthly things you don't believe me. How do you believe? How can you even begin to understand if I talk about heavenly things? The second point that's clear in Jesus' teaching is that the new birth is God's work, not man's work. The new birth is God's work, not man's. We can see it in the terminology, born again or born from above. Just as, as we have nothing to do with our natural birth, so also our spiritual rebirth is not our own work. It's the work of another. It's the work of God. It's the work of God's grace. Leon Morris observed, and I quote, Entry into the kingdom is not by way of human striving, but by that rebirth which only God can effect. Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life. It's not ours to earn, it's God's to give. It's something that is done to us, given for us, provided for us. It's a work of God. For by grace we're saved, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is God's work, salvation is of the Lord. And then thirdly, Jesus points out that 
while the work, working of the new birth is invisible, impossible for us to see what's happening, impossible for us to fully comprehend what's going on. Nevertheless, it is the new verse is revealed by its effects. It's revealed by its effects. That's the point of verse 8. Jesus says, The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The wind is mysterious, the wind is invisible, but it is revealed by its effects. And interestingly enough, that's the point that's made back in Ezekiel 36. I think Jesus had this in mind. Verse 25, I'll sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and my statutes. You keep my statutes and my judgment and do them. You'll be walking in newness of life. The new birth has a purpose. It's going to be recognized by these visible effects. Ezekiel 37 verse 9, thus saith the Lord. Come, O four winds, breathe, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. This is what happened. The wind blows. The Spirit of God blows upon them. And, and it tells Ezekiel that they come out of the graves, that they stand up as living. They give evidence of life. This is exactly what we see in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows. The Spirit of God blows. It causes spiritually dead to, to show signs of life. And the point is this. That new life is the evidence of the new birth. If there are no signs of new life. There's no, there's no different life. Then there's no reason to think that someone's been born again. There's no visible evidence. You know, the term born again is used frequently today. Some people have a deep emotional experience, some crisis in their life that deeply affects them. They said they've had a born again experience. But unless you've come to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior from sin and entered into a new life and have your eyes open, the light shines and gives a new heart created in you and you have a new growing relationship with Christ and a growing obedience to the Lord. Then what Jesus is, unless you have that, what Jesus is talking about hasn't happened to you. The new birth, it's necessary. It's the work of God and it's going to be revealed by its effects. And all this leads Nicodemus to one final question in verse 9. He says, how can these things be? And that's our fifth heading. Jesus began by reproving this great leader and teacher for failing to understand the most basic things of God's word. But then no doubt out of compassion for this man who had come to him seeking an answer, Jesus goes on to answer his question most thoroughly. How can these things be? Nicodemus asks. Jesus answers him thoroughly. As a matter of fact, Jesus gives three answers to that question. Beginning with the means of rebirth. How can this new birth be? Nicodemus asks. Jesus replies, verses 14 and 15. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is the answer to the question. How can these things be? This is the means, Jesus said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus here is recalling an event from the time of Moses. It's recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Nicodemus would have known all about it. The Israelites were beset by fiery serpents. They bit the people. People were dying. And God told Moses to make a serpent of brass and set it upon a pole. And those who obeyed the command to look upon the serpent of brass, they were healed. And the answer is this, in answer to Nicodemus' questions, how can these things be? The answer is this, that in a similar way, God has lifted up his son. That is, Jesus Christ, God's son, came down from heaven and he was lifted up upon the cross. And everyone who looks in the eyes of faith and looks upon Christ, they being dead in trespasses and sins, wounded by sins, and yet they look upon Christ. They shall be saved. They shall have eternal life. They're passed from death unto life. So the issue is not how do we procure the new birth. The question is how does God grant it to sinners? The answer is it's found in the cross of Christ. When Christ was lifted up, Christ's sacrificial death upon the cross, that was God's plan for the rebirth of sinners. Notice there are two words must in this passage. Verse 7, Jesus said, ye must be born again. And then he teaches the Son of Man must be lifted up. And those two must go together. Christ must take our place upon the cross, bearing our sins, being our substitutes. And we who are condemned sinners must look to him in order to be saved. This is how the new birth takes place. Christ dying for sinners who believing in him, that's God's plan for our salvation. To them he gives eternal life. We're born again by the Spirit of God. Christ is lifted up upon the cross. That's God's provision for those who are dead in trespasses and sins. The cross is the means by which the Spirit of God brings life to believers. That's Jesus' first answer. How can these things be? Jesus tells him the means of the new birth. Second answer comes in verses 16 and 17, where Jesus deals with the reason for the new birth. How can these things be, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replies with these great words, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The reason that there is a new birth is that God loved the world. The world was in rebellion against him. All mankind together was in a league to deny his glory and to reject his authority and to despise his will. And the evidence of that was all around Jesus in his day. It's all around us today. But God so loved the world, the world of lost sinners, the world of those who are dead in trespasses and sins. God loves the world. That's why there is such a thing as a new birth. And how different is God's love to ours? We love something that's lovable, something that is lovely to us. But God loves the unlovely and God loves the unloved. God loves the world. God loves you. God loves you so much that he would give his son for you. 
You know, people are always saying words to this effect, more or less, you know, why doesn't God do something? And God has. God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son to die upon the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life. I hope you can see what this means. It means there is hope for the world. There is hope for you. Why? Because God loves you. You can have a new life. How? By receiving the gift of God's son by faith. You can have a new beginning. You can have a new life. You can become a new person. You can be remade to become a new man, a new woman. Is there anything more glorious, more wonderful, more important than that? Nicodemus rightly says, how can this be? How could such a thing be? It can be because God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus asks, how can this new birth be? Jesus' third answer is found in verse 19. It says that light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. His light shining in the darkness. And to those that look to him, they are enabled to see. Those that look to him shall live. Those that look to him shall see the kingdom of God. John's prologue said of him, in him was life. The life was the light of men. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Man is lost in sin. Man is in the darkness of sin. Man cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot enter into eternal life. So Jesus came as the light. He came as the light to enable people to see. He came as the way, as the way that people enter into the kingdom of God. And there's one last point that Jesus made, namely, he issues a challenge to Nicodemus who came by night. Verse 19, he says, this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Jump down to verse 21. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. You see the point. Once the light had come, it is now not Jesus who is under scrutiny, it's Nicodemus who is under scrutiny. And the coming of the light, the coming of Jesus Christ, and Nicodemus coming out of darkness, approaching the light, this is a crisis moment for Nicodemus. Indeed, the Greek word translated condemnation, there is the Greek word crisis, where we get the word crisis from. It's a crisis moment for Nicodemus. He could commit himself to Jesus. He could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just as a teacher, a great teacher, but as the saviour of his soul. Or he could stand condemned because he comes to the light and then turns away to head off back into the darkness. And this same crisis affects everyone today. People who hear the gospel, the light begins to shine. Just like you're hearing the gospel tonight. This is a crisis moment for you. What you can do, two things. You can proceed to the light and accept Jesus Christ as your saviour. His light exposes your sin. His light reveals himself as the saviour, the only hope of salvation. You can proceed by faith to receive that or you can turn away and go back into the darkness. It's a crisis moment. It's a moment where you are confirmed in condemnation or you turn to Christ to receive salvation. New life. The question is, what are you, what are you going to do? 
Nicodemus does actually show up in John's Gospel again in chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're told that Nicodemus then speaks up for Jesus before the Sanhedrin. But he still remains uncommitted. But the day finally comes when Jesus dies upon the cross. When the Son of Man is lifted up upon the cross and Nicodemus is there. And surely Nicodemus recalls this conversation as he stands there and gazes upon Jesus dying upon the cross. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And finally Nicodemus understood. Finally Nicodemus begins to see the kingdom of God. He saw not merely a teacher. Not simply a rabbi, not just a miracle worker, but upon the cross, he saw the saviour of his soul. He saw his redemption through the precious blood of Christ. And that is when Nicodemus at long last came out of the darkness and into the light. We read in John chapter 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus... But secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave and came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which was the first that came to Jesus by night. At the first came to Jesus by night. Finally, Nicodemus commits himself to Jesus. Willing to be known as a disciple of Jesus, come what may. There's the evidence of regeneration right there. There's the evidence right there. So it is, Jesus says, everyone that's born of the Spirit will give evidence of new life. The wind blows. We don't understand the mystery movement of the wind. But it's there. As the evidence is there. Well, today the light is still shining through the preaching of the gospel. And my exhortation to you tonight is don't wait like Nicodemus did. But now, right now, look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Look upon Christ upon the cross. Know that he's there because of God's love for you. God loved you. and God did the work for you. We don't have to save ourselves. The work has been done. Jesus became our substitute. He died in our place. So that we don't have to endure that. He died the death that we deserved. And he offers us a new life that we could never produce, that we could never earn, that we could never receive any other way. He died the death that we deserved. He offers us a new life that we could never earn. And maybe you're here tonight because like Nicodemus, you're, you're attracted to Jesus. You find something in Jesus attractive. And that's probably the case. Otherwise, why would you be in church tonight? But the thing about the scriptures, the thing about Jesus, the thing about Nicodemus, the thing about you is that Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. And he knows that you need to be born again. You can ask all your questions, you can tell, you know, what you know about Jesus it gets right to the point, you need to be born again. And so the exhortation for you tonight is to look and to live. Look to Christ and receive salvation. 
And to those of you that profess to be born again, I ask you this question, where, where is the evidence of that? Where is the evidence of that? Okay. If there's no evidence of new life, then we have to assume there is no new life. And so the question I'd ask you, you profess to be born again, there's got to be evidence of new life. And if others see it in you, then we praise the Lord for that. And if you know and believe that God has truly changed your life and is continually be impacted by the transforming power of the gospel, if there is growing evidence, growing a, a, a continued obedience, putting off the idols that Ezekiel spoke about, and a greater loyalty to Christ and obedience to Christ, this, that's the evidence. A growing relationship with Christ. If that's not happening, then, then I think you have reason to doubt the genuineness of your profession. Jesus tells us <clears throat> that there's coming a day in which people stand before him. Many people say, Lord, Lord, you know, haven't we done this, this, this and this and this? There's a false profession and false evidences. There's no evidence of genuine salvation. The Lord says, depart, I never, I never knew you. You profess to know me, telling me what you know. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so I would encourage you to do what Paul encouraged, I think, the Corinthians to do. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. That's a good exhortation for everyone here this evening. But if you know for sure and certain that you, you're not yet born again, that I encourage you, I'd urge you to look to Christ. Okay. In Moses' time, there was a serpent upon a pole. Here's someone injured by a serpent bite. All they have to do is turn and look, believing. Turn and look. There's life for a look. And so it is with Christ. We turn in faith to him, trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. It's as simple as that, turning to Christ and believing in him. Let's close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pray for, Lord, I pray for everyone here this evening. <clears throat> uh, those who uh, uh, know for certain uh, that they're not yet saved. Thank you that they're here this evening. And Lord, I do pray that you'd open their eyes, help them to see, help them to see that Jesus is the saviour that they need. Lord, I pray that you might help them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even this evening. Father, I do pray for others here, perhaps uh, others who would attend here regularly. Uh, but there is uh, no significant evidence of new life. There is no uh, putting off of the old, putting on of the new. There's no progress. There's no growth. There's no deepening of relationship. We might wonder, we might doubt whether, in fact, there is new life at all. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of these things and to be urged, each one of us, to examine ourselves to, be, to see whether we be in the faith. And Lord, I pray that uh, each one of us would not just uh, palm this off <clears throat> as a casual thing, but there might be an earnestness about each one of us this evening. And if we're not, don't need to be earnest about ourselves because we have the assurance, the witness of the Spirit, Lord, help us to be perhaps earnest and concerned about others uh, in whose lives we see no evidence. Uh, Lord, give us a burden and a concern uh, for them. 
But we thank you that all of our needs are met in Christ. Our salvation and the assurance of our salvation is met in, is met in Christ. And uh, Father, I do pray that you might use the word and use the spirit of God uh, in each of our hearts this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat>